hey, Roger, I feel your pain. I feel like I can't move around too much. But thank you for the great job you did last week. I was able to watch you and hear you. You did a good job. Thank you so much. We're back in the book of Colossians this morning, chapter 1, starting in verse 15, and we'll go to verse 20. And, of course, the title, as you can see, is The Supremacy of Christ. Now, the way of introduction, in Revelation chapter 3, we read about the church of Laodicea, also known as the lukewarm church. And this is one of the seven letters that we find within the book of Revelation to the seven churches. But specifically, I want to mention verse 20, where it states, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That verse has been used by evangelists through the years to talk about Jesus knocking on the heart of the unsaved, the lost. I'm sure that the Holy Spirit does knock on people's heart. We call it conviction. And even as believers, we can get convicted by the Holy Spirit by certain rooms. Okay, we open our heart to Christ, but it's like having a house. When you have company over, you make sure the living room and the kitchen squared away and the guest bathroom. But you want no one going back to see the bedrooms or the hallway. All the toys are everywhere. Your grandchildren come over from our case. But our hearts like that. We let Jesus come in. We want him to see all the good stuff. But all the bad stuff, we kind of want to lock away. So what I'm talking about is Jesus, as it says in this verse, knocking at our hearts saying, Hey, Tim, let me in that part of the heart. Let me come in and clean that area of your life up. But surely we can say with this verse, I mean, he's talking about knocking at the door. It's like he's standing at the church door, knocking on it, going, Hey, I hear you guys talking about me and singing about me. Perhaps you will let me come in so you can actually be in my presence. You know, you talk about repentance in this verse, but many today, instead of calling people to faith and repentance and submission to Christ, many claim that Jesus wants or even desires them to have a stress-free life. Perhaps you heard of it. It's called the prosperity gospel. Health, wealth, and uncommon success for those who believe in Christ. Now, interesting enough, I, I, I had to double-check this twice to make sure I was correct. There is a newspaper called the Washington Post. Perhaps you heard of it. And there is a section in there, which is their opinion section, and it had the worst ideas of the decade. And this was published this year, and it was an article in there written by Kathleen Falsini. And the name of the article was The Prosperity Gospel. I'm not going to read the whole article to you, but I'm just going to quote a sentence out of that article. She wrote, quote, that the prosperity gospel teaches God blesses those who God favors most with material wealth, end of quote. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus can change every aspect of our lives. Now, you have to remember that Revelation 3.20 and this Colossians that we're looking at was written to believers or writing to the church. So keep that in mind. Because as a believer in Christ, rather than asking him the question, what can he do for me? What can Jesus do for me? As a true disciple of Christ, I must be asking myself on a daily basis, am I living in light of his lordship? 
we must not simply add Jesus to our lives. He's not a laugh enhancer. He wants more than that. We must adore him, exalt him with our lives through obedience. So here, here's it in a nutshell. Jesus doesn't want a place in your life. He demands first place, and rightly so. And our passage this morning tells us about the supremacy or the power or the authority of Christ. Now, many scholars believe this is a hymn that was sung by the early church. And there's two clear thematic divisions within this hymn. Jesus' relationship to the created world and his relationship to the redemption of what he created. In other words, Jesus is indeed Lord over all things, which speaks to the supremacy of Christ. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. So you're asking, well, okay, now what? Here's the so what. Because of the truth found within this majestic, majestic praise of Christ, it serves as a basis for our own praises and thanksgiving, both as individual believers and as the body of Christ. When we look at this text and we read it and we unpack it in the short amount of time that we have together, that alone should be the source of our praise. I have nothing else to praise God about. I surely can praise God for who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. And with that, let's look at the text. Starting in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, in the Greek world, where this text was originally written, the word image conveyed two nuances of meaning, one being representation. The image represented or symbolized the object pictured. In other words, an image on a coin or an image when you look at a mirror. Now, if that was the meaning of the text, it would have said Jesus just symbolized God. But what's the text say? He is the image of the invisible God. So it's a second nuance of meaning, which is manifestation, that the symbol brought with it the actual presence of the object. J.T. Excuse me, J.B. Phillips, a biblical scholar, translates this, quote, visible expression. So here's where I'm getting at. Jesus brought God into the human sphere of understanding. He manifested God, and you see that same terminology used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that Christ, that in Christ the invisible God became visible. He shared the same substance as God. The very 
nature and character of God was perfectly revealed in Christ. If you want to see what God looks like, or how God moves, what's important to him, study the Gospels. How did he react to certain situations? There was a, uh, a uh, program we had years ago back at the airline. It was called Walk a Mile in My Shoes. We could swap jobs with other employees. Now, be calm. They wouldn't let me fly airplanes because I don't have a license. But I could trade jobs with a ticket counter or reservations. And the idea was if I walked a mile in another employee's shoes, I would appreciate the job that they face day in and day out, therefore making the company more profitable by understanding each other's role and responsibilities. So I go up, we could go up to the ticket agent, a gate agent, which I don't think I could have that job, the way some people treat those people, but walking a mile in someone's shoes. And here's the point. Jesus has walked a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be human. Human emotions, hunger, being tired. You know, here is the great I am in human flesh, and he walked everywhere he went. All the miracles that he performed were done for somebody else, never himself. Verse 15 goes on to say the firstborn of all creation. Now that term firstborn was used in genealogies and historical narratives. And it frequently was used of one that had a had a special place in the father's heart. And normally we speak of the firstborn chronologically, the firstborn son. But over time, it kind of lost that meaning from having chronologically first place to someone having priority in the family so it could be the second or third not necessarily the first son by default so it later developed that and what's interesting when you read this verse in context the niv renders it jesus is over all creation see that term firstborn distance jesus from creation not under it he is preeminent with reference to creation and that's even emphasized more as you look in verse 16 that Jesus is the one by whom creation came into being. He is both prior to and supreme over all creation. In fact, verse 16 states that, For by in, or in him, all things were created. Now the Father determined to bring creation into existence. The Son actually brought the plans into it. So the Father was the architect, and the Son the foreman of construction. Think about the mind of God when you look at creation. Do you ever go somewhere, perhaps go fishing or hunting or you're traveling and you just stand in awe of creation, perhaps a sunrise or a sunset? God thought all that up. That's amazing. The human body, how complex it is, how everything knows exactly what to do and how to do it. It's amazing. It is truly amazing. Now, I'm going to skip over part of the verse to go where it says, all things have been created through him. So creation came to be through his power and ability. Now, in John chapter 1, verse 3, he affirms that everything owes its existence to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 
points to his creative and sustaining power, which I'll get back to in a moment. Look what else it says. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the goal of all creation. Everything exists to display his glory. Ultimately, he will be glorified in his creation. All creation speaks to his glory. Put it to you this way. An artist who produces a sculpture. Originally, that idea and the details have to come from his or her mind first. He or she builds the proportion, the perspectives, the figures, and the emphasis desired from that statue they're going to make. Then it's constructed by the artist as he or she is the only one can see the finished product in his or her mind. And finally, when it's revealed what it is, those who admire the finished work think of the artist who imagined and planned and accomplished this work of beauty. As long as the sculpture stands, people remember and appreciate the artist. That's the same way it is with Christ. Look at creation. You want to know there's a God? Go outside and take a look. Look at creation. In fact, we have scientists telling us that the universe is so complex and so big, there is no way this place happened by accident. Imagine if I had ten quarters, and I took a piece of paper, and I wrote the number one, two, three, and so on, up to the number ten, and placed each of those numbers on a quarter. Then I took all those quarters and put it into my pocket, and I pulled them out in chronological order, not one times, not two times, but ten times in a row. What would be the chances of me being able to do that? Probably slim to none. But to boil it down, that's the chances of all this creation happening all by itself. They call it intelligent design. I call it the Lord God Almighty created this place. It's just so big and complex. Creation cries out. And look what he says in the middle of this verse. He specifies whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Even the cosmic powers and principalities were created in Christ. They all derive their existence from him. Whether good or bad, they are subject to him as creator. Even the demons owe their very existence to Christ. Remember the story about Job? You ever heard about Job? I would say, if you have three friends like Job, who needs enemies? His friends are real hard, but we all have friends like that. That's another sermon for another time. Let's move on. But there's a conversation that happens in Job chapter 1 that we're privy to, but Job has no idea this conversation happens. And God goes to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan basically says the only reason why he blesses you and follows you and obedience to you because you bless him with all this material stuff. And God says, okay, I'll Let's take that away from him, see what happens. He lost it. He lost everything. And Job did not curse God and turn away. In fact, he said, naked I came into this world and naked I go out. So Satan goes back to God. Saying, well, he still has his life, he still has his health. So basically God gives permission to Satan to do everything to him but Strike him with illness, but don't take his life. My point bringing 
that conversation up between God and Satan is that Satan had to go to God for the authority to do that. And also, Satan's not omnipresent. He's not all places at all times like God is. God is creator. He is sustainer. Christ is creator, sustainer. They, they are the authority. They have to operate underneath their lordship is the point. And when it says thrones, dominions, rules, and authorities, it's possible that he is referencing a greater order of angelic realms. But if the list is complete or not, that's not the point. If it's not in a particular order, that's not the point either. The point is from the highest to the lowest, all are subject to Christ. They were created by him and through him and for him is the point Paul is making. He goes on to say he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, clearly, this is time oriented, emphasizing that Jesus existed before creation. Look what else it says. Not only the work of creation, he's before all things, but look what it says, the second part. In him, all things hold together. So his work of creation included the continual sustaining of what was created. So he sustains, and by the way, that's in the Greek perfect tense, so it goes on and on and on. He's the one sustaining creation. Back to right, he's the one who is allowing you to sit on that pew without flying in the space. We know it as the law of gravity. He's the one who did that. He's the one sustaining it. What rose this morning? The sun. He's the one who commanded it to rise. He's the one who commanded it to set. He's the one allowing you to breathe in lungs in your, uh, air into your lungs and carbon dioxide out. He's the one sustaining this very creation. And here is what's hard to wrap my mind around. Even people who curse him and shake their fists in his face, he sustains creation even for them. He lets it rain on the just and the unjust, Scripture says. Now think about this. Out here in Forestburg, and especially out in Bellevue, we can look up and we can see the night sky. Ever look up and see all the stars? He knows everyone by name. Calls them out by name. Ever see the planets? Sometimes the news will tell you if you have a telescope, you see the planets. The, the earth as it rotates, goes around the sun, as it spins, gives us days and nights, and it tilts, it gives us seasons. I mean, even science will tell us if that was just a fraction off, we all burn up or freeze. Everything's so delicate and balanced the way it works. But he's the one sustaining all that. If he can take care of all that that we see, even the microscopic things we don't see with the naked eye, we have to have a microscope. If he can command all that to keep going, then he can take care of our lives. He can take care of Forestburg Baptist Church and any challenges that we may face in the future. Because he is supreme. He is over all things. And he switches here by mentioning that he is also the head of the body, the church. Now, the universe needs a head. It needs something commanding it to keep it from going in chaos, to direct it. And the universe is governed by him. It was founded and established in him alone. But here the body designates the church or local congregation as the body of Christ. Now, as a believer, as a member of the body of Christ, specifically even a member of this local body, see, I got to chase this rabbit, I'm sorry. When you join a local church, you're not joining to take 
orders for me or the deacons. Or, you are saying to God, God, I pray this is where you want me to serve you through this local body. And as such, we have mutual duties and common interests that must not be neglected. We are to use our spiritual gifts to edify and build up the body. Each of you have a spiritual gift. There's even an assessment test in the back you can pick up. Now it's man-made. Don't let it pigeonhole you into one thing. But if you answer it as sincerely and openly as you as you can, it will give you some guidance where God may have gifted you. But none of us are supposed to be spectators. We're supposed to be helping build up edify. You know those old billows that you get for your fireplace? You open up and it blows. Or perhaps if you're ever blowing on a campfire, you blow those embers. And what you're trying to do, you spark up that flame, get it going again. That's what it means to edify or build up the body. Romans 12, verse 4 and following. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. They're basically saying, look at your body. I've learned. You don't know what you really got until you have it no more. I mean, try to walk with one of your toes. Lose sight in one of your eyes. Have a surgery and try to laugh, but it hurts so much when you laugh you can't do it. I mean, we don't realize how much we depend upon each body part to do its job. We just take it for granted. And as long as each member of our body is doing its job, we are healthy. We can move about and do the things that we need to do. But when those body parts get broken or they have to be removed, we can find other ways to, to go, but that's not how it was originally designed. The same thing is true with church. See, the truth, truth of the matter is for a local body to be healthy, every member must be doing its job. Because you have a gift and a calling that I don't. You can reach people that I cannot. And God, please look at, everybody look at this direction. God wants to use every one of you to build up and edify his body. He wants all of us to go out and make disciples of all nations. And remember this, as the body of Christ, we are dependent upon him for our very life and for the power that we need. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is firstborn from the dead. The resurrection age has burst forth, and he is the very first one. He is the first fruit who guarantees the future resurrection of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. Let me just ask a question. Because the resurrection is one of those pivotal points in Christianity. Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, his sacrifice is no good. Therefore, we have no forgiveness of sin. We're in a lot of trouble. But the good news is Jesus did raise from the dead. If he did not, then where is his body? His tomb was public information, guarded by Roman soldiers, not just two or three, probably a whole garrison. And it was sealed. And those guards ran away or departed or 
flee from their post, they would be killed themselves. And let's face it, it was the best interest of the Jewish and Roman leaders to produce a body to tell people to be quiet. There he is. And they would have done it. He's still dead. Here's his corpse. Be quiet. Disciples were running scared. And ladies, it's just the truth of the matter. Back then, ladies' word didn't mean anything. The ladies were like second-class citizens. And the first person he reveals himself to is women. If I was going to write a story to try to convince people that was not true, I would not have written that in that context. But the truth of the matter is the tomb is empty. And the question comes down to how do you say the tomb was empty? Remember, the disciples were running scared. They didn't seal the body. Something happened that morning that scared the Roman soldiers so bad they took off running, knowing that they wouldn't put to death. And look at Peter. Poor Peter, he gets a bad rep. I, I, I identify with Peter more than any of the disciples. The same guy who denied him three times, running scared, the same guy just weeks later on those temple steps telling those same people, the person that you crucified is indeed the Messiah. Talk about being bold and powerful. There was Peter. Because Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, he is preeminent, the first and greatest in all things. And that points to his supremacy, his rule, his authority and power over all things. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. This is the reason why Christ does indeed have first place in all things. Jesus is completely God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Now remember, God includes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is one of the Godhead, but he is every bit God. And it was determined that the human Jesus would be God. He shared all the properties and characteristics and prerogatives of God. Now listen very carefully. The incarnation is that God took on human flesh, not that a human was elevated to deity. Let me repeat that. The incarnation is that God himself took on human flesh, not that a human was elevated to deity. God the Father initiated the deliverance of his people, and he delights in the fact that Jesus is fully and completely God. Look what it says about him. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. All things were created by him and through him and for him. Now it's saying that all things have been reconciled through him. The unity and harmony of creation suffered a considerable dislocation. And all this was a result of sin entering into the world. Reconciliation means the restoration of a broken relationship. By the way, reconciliation requires two prerequisites. Number one, both parties have to be willing to be reconciled. And number two, there must be an occasion for that to happen. But God demonstrated his willingness and has provided the occasion. He did this by taking the initiative and sending Jesus as a reconciler. And get this, not only does he take the initiative and say he wants to be reconciled with you and I, but even the opportunity to be reconciled is prodded by him because his Holy Spirit, the one who convicts us. 
even our very faith of coming in Christ is a gift of God. I can stand up here and speak to I'm blue in the face, but it will never convict your heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That, that tugging you feel right now, that's not me. That's God. That's his Holy Spirit. So I can't even take credit for listening to the gospel. I have to get credit for God to provide the opportunity to hear the gospel. I have to thank God for the opportunity to respond to it and respond to it and even have faith because he revealed that to me. Having made or by making peace through the blood of his cross. Oh, you see the theology of blood atonement all through scriptures. Identifies the substitutionary aspect of Christ's death by recalling the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament that were substitutionary in nature. He was the one perfect sacrifice once and for all. The peace that's achieved is objective, not subjective. Because it's a peace of relationships, not feelings. Although our human heart cries out for feelings of peace, the deep need is for a relationship of peace. And relationships are corrected. Feelings will follow. and It brings order and harmony into what otherwise is chaotic and distorted. The reason we cannot find peace is because we don't have peace with God. Because it's a peace of relationship. So first thing you got to ask yourself, you don't have peace this morning. And I'm not talking about smiling on your face, laughing at everything. No. People are putting rid of rooms for that. Life is hard. Life is difficult. But through our all trials and tribulations, we can have that peace that passes all understanding because we know God is in control. Our salvation cannot be taken away from us. Of course, the question would be, do you have peace with God? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Or you, is God making you aware of that even now? Or perhaps you've never truly given your life to Christ. See, the deep need we have, the deep need that all humans have is to be reconciled to their creator. Now, all illustrations break down, all right? So this is the, probably the best one I can think of. Now, don't hold this against me. We, ha- we, we own a Ford Ranger. Or excuse me, Tammy owns a Ford Ranger. Now, what good would it do if it was to break down, I run out and buy a Volkswagen manual and try to fix that Ford pickup by the owner's manual of a Volkswagen? Oh, sure, there might be some basic stuff in there about changing the oil that maybe I could apply or maybe a truth here or there that I could do, but overall, it wouldn't work. Or if I did fix it that way, perhaps it would work for a little bit, but then it would break down again and cause even more damage than there was in the first place. Here's the point. You have a creator. He puts you together. You were knitted together in your mother's womb. He has given you your gifts, your personality, everything. And the reason we have so much trouble is we go everywhere else trying to find out what our reason and purpose in life when the very one who created this whole thing from the beginning stands there and says, won't you just come to me and I'll give you purpose. I'll give you meaning. In fact, I loved you so much that I came down and I initiated so you can be reconciled. I did this all on my own initiative because I love you that much. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? 
Why do you think Mr. Watts wrote those words? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Christ is the one who has revealed the very nature and character of God. He is both prior to and supreme over all creation. He is Lord. All things were created through Him and for Him. Without His continuous sustaining activity, everything would disintegrate. Jesus is head over the universe. He is head of the church, His body. He has a relationship with His people. He is the one who's in control. And the church is totally dependent upon Him for her life and power. It was in Christ that God, in all His fullness, was pleased to take up residence. God's Spirit, His Word, His wisdom and glory, perfectly revealed in Christ. Reconciliation and peace are only possible by His work on the cross. Jesus is the God-man, the one mediator between man and God. There is no need for another. This hymn that we just briefly walked through, this majestic praise of Christ for who He is, must be our basis for our praises, our worship, our adoration, and thanksgiving. And I want to just encourage you. This has been a tough year. 2020, who knew? But through it all, we can give praise and adoration and worship and thanksgiving to God, to Christ, both as individual believers and as a church. Look what the text says. And we just barely walked through. There's so much more to unpack. He is first. He is supreme. And although he's high and exalted and lifted up, he comes and speaks to us. He wants to have a relationship with each and every one of us. He humbled himself. Took on human flesh. Can you imagine what heaven looks like? All the glory. He stepped out and took on human flesh. He's still deity. He still had all the prerogatives and characters, but he took on, he humbled himself. He walked everywhere he went. He ate food. He sweated. He got tired. All those things. And yes, he had friends who turned their back on him. All the crowds that followed him for what he could do for them. But the minute everything turned around, they all left and deserted. Even Peter denied him three times at the very end. Not only did he humble himself, take on flesh, but he came as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, the text says in Scripture. And only that, he humbled himself, even death on the cross. You realize the cross was reserved for the worst criminals there was. If you're a Roman citizen, you were spared that way of execution because it was considered so terrible and so humiliating. Not to mention in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, it talks about anyone who's hung on a tree is accursed of God. But he did all that because he loves you. He loves his creation. I'm going to end with this. You know this verse very well. John 3.16 God so loved the world. And the the word in the Greek is cosmos. is where we get our word cosmos from. He loves his creation.
that he sent his only and one son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. One day, everything's going to be set right. Even creation is crying out for redemption. And one day, everything will be perfect. But until that day comes, we cannot give up. We have to press on. And those hard times come. Turn to this passage. Remind yourself who Jesus is. Have you ever in your life given your life to Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you ever done that? If you're not sure, why not take five minutes to make sure? Why not take the time now to get things right with God then spend all eternity going, I had a chance. Why didn't I take it? You know, the truth of the matter is, none of us know how much time we got left. Not to be morbid or try to browbeat people down the aisle, but the truth of the matter is, you walk out those doors, you don't know if you're going to come back or not. It's just the way the life we live, the world that we live in. That's why we always must be ready. So please, I exhort you and I plead with you, take this time seriously every Sunday, every moment really that you feel the voice of God press upon your heart. Do it now before it's too late. God's always there. He's always available 24-7. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Jesus, you are supreme. You are over all things. We praise you for our salvation. We praise you for your willingness to sacrifice your life to make atonement for our sins. And Father, I pray for those who are here, those who are watching via the internet. Father, if they feel that conviction of your spirit, perhaps this time more than any other, we need to have peace. The peace that only you can provide, dear God, I pray that we will take care of that this morning. Father, I ask that you knock down every wall and break every chain as we respond to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.